Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Danny Paradis, Western correspondent for APTN. Hello. Jesse Brown, hi. Today on the show, we are going to do something different. I don't know, super shortcuts, uh, deluxe, duly noted. Whatever we decide to call it, what we're going to do is take turns talking shit about a big old pile of news. How's that sound, Danny? Steaming pile of news. <laughs> this episode is brought to everybody by Sylvia Douglas, Toby Hughes, Weston Sandberg, Jada Roche, Carlo Alcos, Susan Washington, Kimberly Chang, and Rachel. Hi, my name is Rachel, and I'm a Canada Land supporter in Nogajiwanong, Peterborough. I work as a safer supply nurse embedded in a primary care practice, and I support Canada Land because it is an excellent antidote to, as Jesse puts it, the fire hose of bullshit coming at us from all sides. I appreciate the good ideas I hear from across the political spectrum, et j'apprécie surtout le travail de Amélie Nicolas. Thanks so much. Keep up the good work. Take good care. All right, Danny, let me go first. Here is the prime minister talking tough and taking a stand against big tech. We're continuing uh, constructive conversations with Google. Unfortunately, Facebook has just refused to recognize any sort of responsibility it might have 
They made the wrong choice by deciding to attack Canada. We want to defend democracy. This is what we're doing across the world, such as supporting Ukraine. This is what we've done during the Second World War. This is what we're doing every single day in the United Nations. And I know that Canadians will not be bullied by billionaires in the U.S., billionaires that are impacting negatively our democracy. We are not backing down on this. This goes to the core of a free and informed society. And he backed down. This is uh, Michael Geist's take. Caving on Bill C-18, government outlines planned regulations that signal willingness to cast aside the core principles of the Online News Act. So while publicly he and the heritage minister have been, you know, letting it be known that they're tough guys and that fighting Facebook is essentially the same thing as fighting Nazis in World War II, behind closed doors they have reached uh, reportedly an accommodation with Google, the details of which are starting to take shape. Basically, it's what Google wanted. Google said, like, the problem with this bill for us, one of them is that it's got unlimited liability. Like, we're supposed to pay news organizations for as much news as, like, there is and as many news organizations as there are. What happens if a thousand more people start news organizations? And the government basically said, don't worry. We are going to guarantee that, you know, not only is the amount of money going to be capped and we don't know how much, but what I'm getting the sense from what's emerging from this process, Danny, is that it's going to be kind of as feared what happened in Australia. Like the players that are in the game now get something. And then the future players, and the point of this bill was that anybody should be able to use this bill to force Google to binding arbitration. If Google isn't paying you, that's going to be gone. So it's kind of like we're all going to scurry up a ladder and then kick the ladder away for future news companies. I think that's how this is going to play out. Yeah, um, I mean that's, that's quite a departure. I, I guess practically, I, I do understand as a as a business, you know, unlimited liability. And as we have seen, as old media dies, new media struggles to be born. But it's certainly a far step from from Trudeau's comments, like a, a drastic departure, which I guess anybody who follows Trudeau shouldn't be overly shocked by. No, I, I feel like the, the kind of governing principle of this government is that, like, Canadians aren't really paying very close attention to anything in Canada. And if you get the soundbite of the very famous prime minister saying a tough thing, what, what happens in regulations over the course of weeks and months behind closed doors is of a lesser consequence. And, you know, when you parse the stuff, he's, like, actually, like, directing his most tough comments to Facebook. And, yes, Facebook is gone. Like, and that's the, uh, the, the like, as this shakes out, like we're already hearing from uh, the Tai that they're unable to post their stories to Instagram. And we're hearing from news readers that some people are not being able to do the same or access Canadian news and sites that really depend on traffic from Facebook, Instagram, and now threads are going to suffer badly. Meanwhile, American coverage of Canadian issues is going to be fine. And those like, I'm sure that the New York times and others who have Canadian correspondents are going to like, pump up their Canadian coverage because now our market is just theirs for the taking. So, you know, Canadian news organizations lose all that traffic. Some of us will gain some money from Google. It's ultimately like kind of a wash for this whole thing. And the government's tough stand against Facebook that they're pulling the ads and then they got the CBC to join or, or anyhow, the CBC decided to join in and boycott 
Facebook. Well, that doesn't go for the Liberal Party of Canada, like the hypocrisy of the Liberal Party still buying Facebook ads and even Heritage Minister Rodriguez posting his normal, you know, fun stories to Facebook while he's taking this this tough stand. That's the very tortured <laughs> position. I mean, that's a little bit of like a Pierre Polyev talking point that you're using there, Jesse. And, and when it comes to politics, it would be an extreme disadvantage for any politician to seed the market where their voters are. So, I mean, it's it might be cynical, but it is politics. Like they have to play in the same game every, as everybody else. Well, so do we. To seed Facebook to American companies covering Canadian news is like a huge amount of damage done to the Canadian news ecosystem by this government. But let me not rant about this. And once again, I have to disclose that I am a publisher and an interested player in this. As are, and as we update people on, on all of the angles of this, as are, of course, Post Media and Torstar. Last week, we heard the news that the dreaded merger of Torstar and Post Media was, was happening. Now we get the news that that's not happening. Those deals have fallen apart. Who's to blame? According to Post Media CEO Andrew McLeod, it's Facebook. and Blame Facebook for everything. This is what he said to the Globe and Mail. What prompted the talks to end, Post Media CEO Andrew McLeod said, was the uncertainty in the industry and the unstable landscape as it pertains to Google and Facebook. That is not the case, according to the Globe and Mail's confidential sources who say that the merger talks fell apart because the major lender to one of the companies, Post Media, wanted to hold on to a significant amount of debt rather than convert it to equity. A major sticking point was how much debt would be held by the New Jersey-based hedge fund Chatham Asset Management, according to sources. The Globe and Mail is not identifying the sources because they were not authorized to speak publicly about the matter. I find that, though it comes from unnamed sources as opposed to the very credible CEO of Post Media, who went on the record to say this is not the case. I find these unnamed sources more credible, knowing what I do about the Post Media situation. And I, I, I continue to find the analogy of a loan shark loan from gangsters the best analogy possible. <laughs> like, if you owe gangsters, you know, $100,000, and you dependably pay the VIG every week, you're giving them, you know, 5000 bucks every week, and then you go to them one day and say, look, this situation's terrible— Instead of keeping this debt, instead of this debt that I owe you, how about you own my business or a big chunk of it? And then the gangsters are going to say, no, thank you. I'd rather you stay in debt to me and keep paying me $5,000 every week. And that's exactly, it seems, what Chatham Asset Management has said. Like, no, we don't want to own a bigger chunk of this new tour star post-media hybrid. We don't want to be partners in the, in the news business. We would rather you just continue paying your usurious, like, inflated loan payments, which they are doing quite well, because that's, that's how vulture funds function. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it certainly speaks to something that I think we've talked about a lot, especially on this show, the the lack of interest from large companies in actually funding the news and focusing on news development instead. It's like sectioning and selling off for parts and, you know, gaining the real estate from the old offices. And, and it's it's sad. This one had me, I mean, I'm glad to see the merger has come to an end for whatever reason. Blame Zuck, blame Trudeau. But this this was really threatening, I think, like nothing else, you know, what, what our media landscape would have looked like. And and it might come up again. Like I had never considered post-media and Torstar merging before. Yeah, I think we have to take the good news where we can get it. And that, that was a very, very threatening bit of, of a possible outcome for Canadian news. So I guess uh, good. Thanks, Zuck. <laughs> All right, your turn, Danny. 
Yeah, so I'm going to tell you about a story that I wrote this week. I wrote a story about a Rama First Nations police officer saying to one of APTN's journalists, I would love to send you into a cell block and have someone punch you in the throat and the mouth and see how you handle it. Say that again? I would love to send you into a cell block and have someone punch you in the throat and the mouth and see how you handle it. That's a cop writing an email to, is it Ken Jackson at APTN? That's right, yeah. So Kenneth Jackson is an APTN Investigates reporter. So a little bit of background about how the story came to be. He was contacted by a Métis man, Ronnie Taylor, about an incident in a jail cell where he was punched at least a dozen times by Constable Scott Anthony, who's an Ontario police officer. There was video footage, and Jackson had to fight for access to the video in court. When he got rights to use the video, he had got an email from the officer's girlfriend, Dana Bolt, who is also a police officer right. for Rama First Nation. So she emailed APTN on our programming side, that is the people who are responsible for everything outside of the news that you see on the APTN channel. And she was expressing her concerns about, I guess I'll use us in this definition, us uh, showing the video. She said that she was a police officer. She mentioned that her father was an elder in their community. And, and here she said she was status Algonquin. I mean, I read this and it's incredibly alarming and it reads like a threat, a cop writing to a journalist saying, I'd like to, I'd like to see you in jail where, you, where you'd be beaten. I mean, it, one thing that occurred to me reading your coverage of this was just like, I, I don't want to make any excuses or apologies for this person. I just felt like she's not that smart. I felt like, you know, somebody like reads an article about their boyfriend or partner and like, then, oh, the media is out to get my partner. Like, and, and he risks his life in jail every day. And I, you know, like, I guess you could read it two ways. You could read it that she's saying like, if you were in his shoes and you knew how dangerous this work was, but it also could be read as like, I'd like to see you get the shit kicked out of you by a convict. All about a video in which in fact, it's the corrections officer beating the prisoner. Yeah, I mean, the fact that it related to what is on, like, what, what's actually captured in video, which is where Ronnie Taylor was punched multiple times in a jail cell. And, and I think when it, when it comes to threats, it really, it matters how the person receiving the email reacts. And, and I would say that Jackson definitely perceived this as threatening. And he's not some wilting flower. I mean, he's been a journalist for 20 years. He covers sexual assault in community, as well as child welfare stories, incredibly difficult things that get a lot of opposition. So this was, this was a special case, I would say. In the email that she sent to him, um, I, I didn't release the whole thing, but she congratulates him on his cowardly garbage journalism, uh, in addition to that cell block piece. I think we have to think about this in the context of, of threats and like treatment towards journalists generally. That's certainly how I reacted was like, it seemed, just seems like it's open season on us. I think so. It's just so easy for people to believe the worst thing of journalists and the way that she's like, you know, like cowardly garbage journalism and then she defends her partner. Like he's, he's the least racist person possible. Like I, I, I believe her outrage and it, all it showed to me was just how, how poorly people understand what we do. It's like nobody was really going to assess whether this guy in his heart is a, is racist or like 
it's my job to cover these things. There's a video of him beating the crap out of a prisoner. It's nothing personal. I'm doing my job, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, people just don't get it. Like, you know, I think that a lot of people, you know, they engage with the news when the news is about them or somebody in their lives. And then it's just so easy for people to think like, oh, this 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 is a shitty reporter out for a gotcha. And it's like, no, we're like, it doesn't matter who this was about. Like, this is what mm-hmm. we do. And actually, that's a really interesting point, because in this case, she took particular issue with Ronnie Taylor being identified as Métis. And that's where she said, oh, you're, you know, she didn't say race baiting, but that was the, the what we're pointing towards. Like that was, you know, inciting the community who would then view this as, as racialized. And Jackson, as he said in an email to her, he isn't talking about race. She's actually the first person that brought up race. APTN, as a matter of course, as an Indigenous broadcaster, does reference whether or not somebody is Indigenous, and and Ronnie Taylor is. So, yeah, I think this does reveal a bit of a misunderstanding. It's APTN. You didn't identify the victim as as Métis to make any implication whatsoever. That's what APTN covers, right? (laughs) Like, yeah. I, you know, I mean, look, uh, Ken, uh, who's been on the show before, of, of, of course, I don't think any journalist should face those kinds of threats from any reader, let alone a police officer. But I, I continue to think like, like we got to figure out some way. This isn't on Ken at all. We got to figure out a way to rebuild the relationship with the public or just sort of explain what we do. There's just such a weirdo disconnect. I, I don't know what to do about it. Yeah, it seems like a not solvable issue. I will say, if you're interested in the story that Kenneth Jackson wrote, he's actually got on his Twitter, which is at a fixed address, he's got some information on how he actually fought in court to get the video. He didn't use a lawyer, so it's a really interesting discussion, and I would go have a look at that. All right, I got the next one up here. Danny, wild story read about this uh, in the CBC. Two teenagers in Hamilton, I read scammed an American man out of $4.2 million in cryptocurrency. Teenagers, okay? And then the police confirmed this. This is a wild story. Later from Fortune Magazine, two teenagers in Canada posed as members of Coinbase's support team, crypto company Coinbase. These two teenagers, we were told, posing as crypto employees from the support team scammed an American man out of $4.2 million in Bitcoin and Ethereum. The police in Hamilton reportedly teamed up with the FBI and the U.S. Secret Service Electronic Crimes Task Force to get these teenagers who went by the aliases Felon and Gaze. <laughs> this is a wild story. News of the arrest of the teenagers, according to the reports, so they used their $4.2 million in stolen crypto. <laughs> what did they do with it? to buy the coveted username at zombie on Instagram. (laughs) Wow. I love this story. There's just one problem with it. Mm -hmm. It is entirely fiction. It is entirely a a sham, according to Hamilton Police Services. But we can't end this there. This is not simply like, oh, CBC got this wrong and the Hamilton Police Services correct the record. Because... If you go through how the CBC and the Hamilton Spectator came to confirm the story, they did their diligence. What happened was they they received a press release. The media received a press release that appeared to be... Spoofed. Yeah. Yes. The media, in this case, CBC Hamilton, gets an email 
press release from Hamilton Police Service. It appears to be from Hamilton Police Service. Apparently, somebody spoofed their email address where, where you can make an email look like it's coming from somebody that's not coming from. And it appeared to be a, a very official-looking press release from the department's public affairs email account. How good was this forgery? Well, it was so good that when the Hamilton Spectator went to the cops for comment on this case, having received the forgery of their own press release, this is a fake Hamilton Police Service press release, and the police, uh, I think, got a copy of it from the CBC, they thought it was real, and they sent it to the Spectator. Like, here, you're asking for comments on this whole thing. Here's the press release that we put out, not knowing that they had never put it out. It was, the whole thing was a forgery. So, and then it gets even more confused because there was, there was a different story about crypto teenager scams. So when CBC Hamilton asked the cops for comment on this, they thought that that's the story that, that this must be in reference to. And they went ahead and confirmed it. They were like, yeah, 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 that must be this one. And, and, and this is real. So the media did their job. They went to the cops and were able to confirm that this was real, but it was the cops who were similarly fooled and, and confused. What, Jesse? Did that make any sense at all? I, I... <laughs> this sort of makes sense, barely. Uh, not so much the way that you've laid it out, but just this, this <laughs> back and forth. <laughs> Sorry. Where I'm doing I... my best. I'm doing my best. <laughs> I just want the audience to realize how routine it is to get an email from police officers where you, you know, you they announce something, like you get them every day, like, you know, police raided this town and they've got this many guns and cannabis. So the fact that it was a, a crypto makes it interesting. But my mind is just blown that the media officer, Indy Barrage, not only responded, but also forwarded the email. In my experience, like the media officers look things up. You know, they, they, when I talk to them, they're usually like typing, they're looking things up in a system. So where, like, where was the due diligence from the police officer? How do they not know that there's this, that, that there's like not a multi-million dollar crypto investigation? Like, did he, did he ask anybody around him? This is, it's not fair to blame the journalist here. I don't know what we can do besides reach out to the police and say, hey, is this, is this accurate? <laughs> yeah. And if they're going to not have the right answer for us, like, <laughs> I don't know. I don't like, for me, it's just like further proof that nobody knows what they're doing. I mean, I guess the media is like kind of blameless in this because you're right. Like, what can you do beyond that? It's just like in the banal, like day-to-day workaday life of handling press releases, it goes both ways, right? It's not just the media that's used to like, okay, this is what a, a press release looks like from the cops. You know, this is the, it came from the right email address. Now let's go back to them for comment. And you go back to them for comment and and they're like, the guy himself is like, yep, that looks like a press release. Like you, that, that, that looks like something we would have made. Uh, let me try Maybe. to get you some answers on this. Let me send it to the other media source, the spectator. Cause like the possibility that somebody forged a fake press release that looks convincing is just like, that's an uncommon thing to happen, right? Like it's uh, uh, that's a, and why? What, like, Jesse, why did this happen? I cannot answer this. And that's that's sort of what's fun about this is it seems pretty victimless. Like, I, it just seems like the why here seems to be, as best we could tell, compatible with, like, my first media gig was writing a humor column where I would send fake shit to the media and see if they'd fall for it uh, just to see if they could. Like, that, like that, that seems to be the why here, just to see if you could. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. 
uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. It doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Denny, what's next? Well, I want to talk to you about a story that came out last week uh, about Premier Danielle Smith and the CBC. So the CBC retracted part of a story that they'd uh, released about Danielle Smith emailing Crown prosecutors, or let's say contacting Crown prosecutors directly. And I think that like that that's a really huge thing. Anytime you have to retract anything in a story, that's a reporter's nightmare. Um, I I know one of the reporters, and and she's a. She's a good reporter. They're both really good reporters. They had solid sources. But I think I just wanted to talk about retractions and, and what that means, Jesse. Can you give us like the, the actual details of like what was retracted? Because this was a very like high profile kind of war between the premier and the press and the CBC in this case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's sort of multiple parts to this story. The initial story mentioned that there were there was emails from the premier's office and crown prosecutors. And since that story came out, the premier denied it. They said they did an investigation, but they only had a 30-day window where they kept their emails. So, you know, that, that didn't completely mean that it was needed to be retracted. But then there was also a report by the ethics commissioner, and there's video evidence of Danielle Smith talking to Arthur Polosky, telling him that she is talking to crown prosecutors. So what we're seeing here is as a part of the overall story being retracted. At the same time, you know, Danielle Smith is now saying she said she was vindicated from the ethics commissioner report. She wasn't. She said she was vindicated from the CBC retracting parts of their story. But I think 
the way that this is going to land with the public is worrisome to me because, you know, you hear, okay, CBC retracts, you think the story is completely false, but that's not the case. Uh, there there are still parts, there's still video evidence where she's talking to uh, Archer Pulowski. So it's it's not a complete vindication of her. She campaigned on doing this. Like, like right. if the question is, did Danielle Smith interfere and abuse her office to lean on Crown prosecutors? Like, she shouldn't be messing. And it was all about how it's a very Trumpy thing. It's like, I'm going to use my political power to uh, get you off the hook for breaking the law in the name of this anti-vax thing. In this case, she did it. She she said she was going to do it. She said if you if you elect me to stay as premier, I'll do it. That she said, told the media she'd do it, and then and then the ethics commissioner found that she did it. And there's just this like little teeny disputed detail in the CBC's reporting that, in addition to talking to Shandro, uh, which we know she did, she also people in her office were also sending emails, right? And you know. Were there emails? The CBC sources were damn sure there were emails. But as you say, the emails disappear after 30 days. Ultimately, it's like you wrestle the CBC to the ground. You're like, show us the emails. There's no emails. And like, you know, whether or not there were emails, the CBC can't get their hands on them. And then they have to kind of retract this one aspect of the story. And then predictably, the premier is like, oh, retraction means I'm totally vindicated. And it's, it's a deception. Like it is bullshit. It's it's trying. To, and I, I saw this explode on conservative Twitter where people were like, ah, d- dirty CBC, eat shit. Like we we you know what what do you got to say for yourselves now? It's like e- even the people tweeting those things. I'm like, but you know she did it, right? Like if you're worried, like if the question is, did the premier like the premier did it? Didn't you want her to do it? Like they wanted her to do it. <laughs> That's what you voted for. I, like it's it's this is why again it falls under just like the laziness and the convenience of just like shooting the messenger, blaming the journalist. It, it, like it's it's and who cares if like I mean we care like we're, ironically we're the ones who care the most if we get like a small detail wrong but the larger point to the public is if you're worried that there is an abuse of power there's no question about that you know Jesse it looks like you do follow Alberta politics huh <laughs> all right I got one last one here I want to share with everybody a story that I think. Like, you can read about this from APTN. You can read about this from the Tai, but that's kind of it. And it's an important story. It's a story that we've been following for years about journalist Laura Robinson. And to remind people about this, way back in 2012, Laura Robinson published in the Georgia Strait newspaper an extensive investigation after she'd received a tip about a very well-known and widely celebrated and powerful and influential public figure, very respected man, and she had received information that he had hidden a period of his life. He had published a memoir in which he misrepresented the year in which he came to Canada, and he obscured this chapter decades ago when he was a young phys ed teacher instructing Indigenous children, not at a residential school, this was an Indigenous day school, a Catholic school, in a remote part of British Columbia. And she had received a tip that he had been abusive to these kids in this period of his history that he uh, had left off the record. So Laura Robinson traveled to Burns Lake, British Columbia, and one by one, she spoke to now grown former students of this Catholic school. And one after the next, on the record, 
And in signed and sworn affidavits, they recounted to her detailed stories of really horrific abuse from this guy. Not only had he had he bullied them and called them racist names, but he had been physical with them. He had kicked them. And in one case, a woman alleged that he had sexually abused her. That story was not part of the first report, but it came out later. So when Laura Robinson's piece ran in the Georgia Strait and, and these allegations against this well-known guy first became known, he denied everything. And he didn't just like issue a statement denying it all. He called a press conference. And at this press conference, what did he do? He shot the messenger, m- metaphorically. He went after Laura Robinson. And, and here is what he said back in September 2012. Having experienced this reporter on many occasions in the past, this feels very much like a personal vendetta. And finally, let me just say, on the very first occasion where this was brought to my attention, I was advised that for a payment, it could be made to go away. Wow. I think that any reasonable person would hear that statement And conclude that not only is this journalist being accused of having a personal vendetta against him, but that she tried to extort him, right? And and that message, both parts of that, that, you know, Laura Robinson, who who has been covering abuse for her entire career, like it's not a personal vendetta when you have a beat, you know? It's like, why are you so Mm -hmm. obsessed with me? Why do you keep writing? It's like, well, because I cover tech and you're Mark Zuckerberg. I'm not obsessed. It's not personal. This is my beat, right? No, she's got a personal vendetta. That was what this guy said in defending himself. And this notion that I took to mean that she had actually tried to extort him, which is quite an explosive allegation. Both of those things defined the press coverage of this case for years. Cam Cole, Christy Blatchford, Terry Glavin, in the National Post, Gary Mason in the Globe and Mail, who wrote about this extensively, even though he had a egregious conflict of interest. He was the co-author of this guy's biography, but he would write these pieces in the Globe and Mail. And the press took the side, not of the journalist, they took the side of this influential Canadian man. And this notion that she was a on a personal vendetta was repeated again and again. Cam Cole called her an obsessive journalist activist. Terry Glavin called Laura Robinson, went to obsessive lengths to expose the story as a scandal. Gary Mason wrote that the campaign against him has the feel of a vendetta. Some people have a lot invested in trying to bring him down. So we watched this play out over the, over the years, and, and it got national attention from the biggest newspapers in Canada. Why am I talking about this now? Well, we, we're finally bringing the whole thing into a legal process where the victims are being heard because the victims are getting their day in a legal proceeding, a a human rights tribunal that the RCMP botched the case to try to find out if they had been abused as children. But I'm learning through this piece by Amanda Follett Hosgood in the TAI details about those specific points. And what I'm learning, you know, I'd heard this before from Laura Robinson, but now we're finding from the stand that the RCMP themselves knew that there was no extortion attempt. Not only was there no extortion attempt by Laura Robinson, there was no, like there was no extortion attempt that was in any way related to her reporting. That in fact, rather than there being an extortion attempt as as a part of of this story from Laura Robinson, years earlier, somebody made allegations against this public figure, and. According to this public figure, there was an extortion attempt, but the cops could not corroborate that at all. And instead of actually defending him, that actually 
hurts his case because if this was all just this one journalist on a personal vendetta, then how come some other person made similar allegations years earlier? Right. Mm -hmm. So that's one detail that's coming out of this. And Jesse, just not to interrupt the flow, but there's also a reason why you can't name this person. Listeners might be wondering, why am I not mentioning the name of this of this public figure who is known as A.B. in in the Taiyi story and all this reporting and in this current proceeding? It's because even though this guy has been named in the press for years by Canada Land and everybody else, in the context of this legal proceeding, his lawyers fought and won to keep his name off the record. So when I asked the question, why is the National Post and the Globe and Mail not covering this? They covered this so extensively when they were getting it wrong. Why aren't they like correcting the record? They're the ones who spread this stuff. The the RCMP were finding out. Like they too believe this guy's thing that she was on a personal vendetta and there's nothing coming out on the stand. Like, well, well, why did you think this was personal? Did she, did she know this guy, AB? Did she have a personal relationship with him? And it's coming out. No, like the entire source of this personal vendetta accusation is the guy himself, right? <laughs> a tale as old as time, Jesse Brown. Yeah, and, and just as people are very, very uh, easy to believe that journalists are scumbags, the idea that some woman is on a personal vendetta and she's obsessive and she's so obsessed with him with no substantiation. Like there's just no reason why she'd have anything against this guy. She's just doing her job. That was like the cops conducted the investigation and so dehumanizing to these indigenous survivors. They're like, do I believe all of these people who say this guy was abusive or do I believe that some white lady is on a personal vendetta against this powerful man? I believe that she's on a personal vendetta and she just somehow manipulated these people into making, like the cops botched the investigation. In my opinion, we're learning from this testimony because they also bought into this personal vendetta thing. Anyhow, there's plenty for the Globe and Mail and the National Post to address now and continue their coverage. And I, I, I don't excuse them for not doing so and dropping this story now that the story is actually looking like it's not so supportive of this guy. But I do have to say in their defense, it's kind of hard to correct the record when you can't name the subject of the story. This is a bizarre, absurd thing in Canada. That, like, imagine if like all of a sudden you're, you're continuing coverage of the Cosby trial or Weinstein or any of these figures, you suddenly couldn't use their name. You know, like, how are you supposed to correct the record? And like, if somebody were writing a book about this entire story, like, do they have to like put this chapter in a different book? Then the like, how how are we supposed to have a free expression or just talk about stuff with these bizarre publication bans? It's it's really a unique Canadian scenario, and it's it's egregious. It is egregious. It's absolutely illogical that they'd be granted um, the right to a publication ban on a story that's of public interest like this. Not to mention it, somebody whose name is already out there, and you know you you can easily find who this is about. It, it's not a challenge. It's unconscionable, like the things that are done under the guise of privacy in this country. Well, and, and some people enjoy those benefits more than others, but the truth will out. The truth is outing and, and, and uh, the truth is outing. I don't know. In, in the long run, it's all going to come together and we're not going to have to infer or send people to Google where you can't get Canadian news anymore soon. Maybe, I don't know. Uh, like, it's just like the blocks to knowing what the hell's going on. They will all fall down. And we will get a beginning, middle, and end of this story. And I think it's going to tell basically the same story that Laura Robinson told over 10 years ago in the Georgia Strait.
it's a long road to vindication for this woman. And, and like you said, everything in this story is just, you know, like women make up allegations of abuse. We don't believe them. Journalists are, you know, just people with their own personal vendetta. It's gross. And, and I'm glad that the truth is coming out. Some of the survivors have died while this has been going on. Yeah, they have. That's, that's a serious thing. Danny, that is Shortcuts. Uh, thank you for joining me for it. Thank you, Jesse. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. I can be emailed at jesse at CanadaLand.com. I read everything that people send in. Danny Parody, where can people find you and your work? Oh, I mean, like everybody else, I'm experimenting with tons of social media platforms. So you can find me <laughs> on threads uh, at Danny Paradise. I wouldn't. I don't post much there. You can find me on Blue Sky under Danny Parody. And uh, you can also find me at APTN. Email me at dparody at aptn.ca. What, you don't like Mastodon? I have Mastodon too, but I think I forgot my password. This episode is produced by Viva Lassard with additional production by Caleb Thompson. Our managing editor is Annette Ejofo. Our editor-in-chief is Karen Puglese. Theme music is by so-called syndication by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you value this podcast, please support it. We rely on listeners like you paying for journalism. As a supporter, you will get premium access to our shows ad-free. You'll get early releases and bonus content. You'll get our exclusive newsletter. You'll get discounts on our merch. You'll get invites and tickets to our live and virtual events across this country. But more than anything, you will be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis. You'll be keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. Come join us now. Click on the link in your show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Thank you for supporting Canada Land. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50-80% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.